Who are you? Do we, do we really need to say it every single week, do you think? There's always going to be someone who just listens to, to the latest episode as the first one. So like, anyone you say, oh, I've got a podcast, you want to listen, they will just listen to the top one, which is this one. Jerome, let's start again. Okay. 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 Hello, welcome to number two. I'm Daniel P. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> number two of our current season <laughs> yes. on Flow, and I am James Hall. Practice podcast. Yes. Hello, James Hall. Uh, welcome to episode two. What, what do we got? What have you got for us today? Well, the the official title of the chapter in the book is the anatomy of consciousness. And for anyone new to this, obviously you're wrong because you should have listened to last week's episode, which was chapter one. But, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, chapter one is a good introduction to. Uh, to what we're talking about before we start chapter two. But there's inherent judgment in me saying, obviously you're wrong, and I'm uh, going to tolerate someone who's just coming to this as the first uh, one that they may have listened to, and I won't... Uh, So do we like mild, like, 30-second recap of what Flo's about, or (laughs) what we're doing here? I think, actually, um, I've got that, because this chapter is about consciousness... Flow, essentially, is ordering consciousness. But what is consciousness? No one fully understands. No, no one in the world. But we know our own impression of thoughts and stimuli and that it's possible to process everything. Wait, that wasn't a recap of chapter one. <laughs> that was an introduction to chapter two. I said, are we going to recap chapter one for that single listener who's joined us on season five, episode two, rather than started by listening to season five, episode one, when actually they should have started with season four, because season four is the true start of Private Practice Podcast, despite there also being season one, two and three, which we're putting into the vault. You do need to actually listen to uh, season four to to keep up with this episode as well, because we're going to talk about core beliefs and some other aspects of the subconscious that relate to ordering consciousness in the present because this book doesn't deal with that at all. It specifically refers to um, people's intentions without giving any reason behind them or any judgment, which is... A judgment is not what psychoanalysis is, but the reason behind your intentions is what we're interested in and that massively influences a lot of the stuff in this book, but the book doesn't go into it. But we can pack that fudge into the episode. We'll try and pack a little of that fudge into each week, but obviously season four would be a really good place to start if some of the topics that are coming up now are just above your head, listener, you know? Hey, that's what James is telling you. Uh, basically, it's all pretty simple stuff anyway, but we're looking at it in as much detail as we can. We're going to chat around the topic using the book Flow by Michali Michali, of course. And uh, so today, chapter two, The Anatomy of Consciousness. Give us a little bit more, James. In you go. Well, before that, I mean, that was a perfect... That was a, that was ideal. Well done, Dan. Thank I, you. Just, I, this is the point where I just 
um, immediately go into the stuff that I've read and my notes and everything, but I just thought I'd bring it back to me first. Mm -hmm. um, so on the front cover of the book, it says the classic work on how to achieve happiness, and happiness is bold and mm -hmm. pink. Mm -hmm. So it's the kind of, I don't, I doubt that Mihaly is the person who wrote the classic work on how to achieve happiness. I As think, in the tagline, you don't think he wrote the tagline? I think it was probably a, a, a um, production house or a marketing person who yeah, wrote someone, that. Someone at Ryder, the publishers, yeah. Uh, and the best book ever on happiness, you need to fucking buy this. Yeah, but if you're, you buy this and you will be happy, this, you will have the best life ever if you just spend, in my uh, edition, 10 99 well, I think your in your edition, edition was actually completely free because I gave it to you. My edition, just bought now, was 14 99 uh, 14 99 is the price to be happy for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. And or, although you can get it for 8 99 on eBay, which is where I got it. So I, 8 99 to be happy for the rest of your life. But I am not looking to this book as a manual on how to be happy. Instead of that, I'm using one of my own uh, little tendencies, yes. which is which draws parallels to my enjoyment of analysing a joke. So instead oh. of looking to the future okay. and using this book as a manual to be happy in the future, I am analysing my year God. that's just gone, yes. the time I was in Paris particularly, yeah. being in my memory among the happiest of my life. And I wonder, so the, the classic work on how to achieve happiness, I'm looking at the text to see if there are any parallels with how I felt at the time in Paris and how I feel retrospectively. And in the moment, I felt like teaching young children was basically just one long sequence of anxiety, incompetence, because I was making it up as I went along when I first started. Do you know the, 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 the skill circle? Do you know the mastery circle or whatever they call it? Uh, unconsciously incompetent, consciously incompetent, consciously competent and unconsciously competent. Have you heard of that? No. OK, we'll come back to that another day. Although I know you want to know more now, don't you, James? You want to know more now? I I'm do. talking about a stage of... Uh, of mastery, where you're learning something like a like a, it's, it's a learning theory. You start off by not knowing what you don't know, and then as you start doing it, you start to realise what you don't know in order to be good at something, and then you start to consciously make yourself aware of how to be good at it and practice like that. And then when you're a master of something, you're doing everything correctly, competently, but it becomes unconscious. And you were talking about being in Paris and in that stage of conscious incompetence you're aware of your own lack of skill in the day-to-day -day of teaching okay uh, the listener might want to listen to this episode twice the first time to hear how we're going to be talking about ordering consciousness being able to process the inf the input of from the world and from your own uh, subconscious and your thoughts and feelings and so on and being able to use all of that information selectively so that you curate what is in your consciousness at any given time in order to s satisfy yourself as opposed to just being at the mercy of everything in the world and being constantly confused in a state of chaos. Uh, the first time you listen to this episode you might be confused in a total state of chaos and therefore you can listen to it again and filter out anything we say that you don't think is relevant. It's <laughs> one way of doing it. I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? But I also... So back to me in Paris. I uh, question whether Paris was 
magnificent because it was the hero's journey of overcoming the obstacle and with a happy ending as the profound memory that I have right now. So there are various experiments. Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, says that if you, or has uh, done some experiments where you subject someone to an unpleasant experience, maybe plunge their hand into water that's an uncomfortable temperature, and if you pull it out after a certain X amount of time, that person has bad memories of having their hand in some uncomfortably hot or cold water. Uh, I think probably cold. But if you plunge their hand into the same temperature, cold water, for the same amount of time, but you leave it in there for longer, so they are ultimately subject to more discomfort, but for the remaining amount of time, X plus Y, in Y, you increase the temperature so it's slightly more comfortable than X. You then pull their hand out and they feel, because they noticed some improvement, they feel like it wasn't so bad. No one usually plunges their hand in water. What the fuck? That didn't even make any sense to me and I've read that book. I can give you a perfect example. Let's try an example that's understandable. I spend some time with you. You're obnoxiously mm. selfish in your behaviour. Uh -huh. It's not particularly pleasant for me to spend that time with you. But then after a certain amount of time, I point out your failings as a human being, you recognise the truth in them and you adapt slightly. And before I say goodbye, you're actually being quite pleasant and I think I'm reminded as to uh, the reasons why I am friends with you. And I may have been subject to 24 hours of your obnoxious, selfish company, but in the last couple, you were quite good company. And I go away thinking that whole that whole time that I spent with you with you was worthwhile. Ah, so you generalize, you generalize to the most recent memory. Is that what you're saying? You gen the parting memory, the the experience. The hmm, interesting. So if someone was in prison for say five years and absolutely hated it until they found out they were going to be released, and then the last six months. Or, they knew they were going to be released and were counting it down. Would they generalise their prison experience to say, oh, it wasn't too bad? Probably. Interesting. And why are you telling us this? So I'm using this book to analyse my happiness in Paris, but I just said my happiness in Paris. Is that just a memory of the final week, which was warm and sunny, and I had a very loose timetable with not many commitments and was living in a wonderful place with sweet-smelling roses in the garden and I had a nice time? And uh, So... My ultimate memory is that the whole time in Paris, if not the whole year behind me, was the best in my life and I had the time of my life. But am I just thinking of the last couple of weeks which were as ideal as a life can be? I mean, I don't know. How can you know that? I mean, other than looking back and reading your daily diaries that you wrote in full detail of everything you'd done that day, how you were thinking, how you were feeling... Um, and evaluating it on some kind of graph and looking for overall trends, trends as opposed to yeah, peaks and troughs. Yeah, well, well, I'm yeah. just going to have to do that next year. I'm just going to have to go away and do basically the same thing for a year and record a daily diary. Well, I really, I really think with the, the 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 experiment that we've been we've been put to that we the task that we've got to handle, which is your life now being basically like a sort of like a lab rat, really, for me and for yourself. I think that I think we should send you away somewhere to foreign climate, somewhere new, meet new people. Mm. and we will keep a daily log of everything that... We, we, 
We'll make you do that thing that you hate. Do you know the smiley face thing? Uh, yeah. But we'll come up with a slightly better version. Is James feeling dot dot dot, and we will log it continuously. We'll put it straight into a, 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 a an Excel spreadsheet, straight from the word go. Okay. <laughs> Hourly updates, and I'll be popping it into my spreadsheet. It can be an experiment. We can publish a paper. Anyway, I feel like we're going off on one here because what has this got to do with the anatomy of consciousness, James? Consciousness. I'm going to read out the science bit now. Thank you. The nervous system. Instructions contained in the protein molecules of human chromosomes, uh -huh. which can be overridden in the brain for an independent course of action. So the data's coming in through your senses, but consciousness is the playground whereby you're able to fiddle with it and change it and, and use it to take action or inaction. Curate it. Stop saying curate. I hate everyone that says curate. It's like that gin advert that they curate your gin. <laughs> they didn't curate the gin. They choose it. Choose it. If choose. Okay. Choose. 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 Select. Select. That's okay. That's fine. Uh, subjectively order the information. Mm, nice. That's not exactly the same as free will, though. So, for example, if I have certain biological programming and there are certain inevitabilities to my external stimulation. Or even if it's not inevitable, there is a given external stimulus at any given like time. weather um, or temperature that you necessarily can't... Well, you can, but temperature or hung, what, hunger, is that what you mean? These things that yeah. you have to somehow do something about. And on top of that, yes, yeah, so the things that I have to do something about, and on top of that, there'll be things in my subconscious that I'm unable to control because I haven't brought them to consciousness. Therefore, most of the things I do are just automatic things. I'm not actually, I don't really have a choice. There is no alternative and I'm, uh, I'm not going to get into quantum physics, so in other words, I'm not talking about whether or not there's a parallel universe where every possibility happens. I just mean, according to what I know about the, my current state, I don't really have a choice of what I do. There are lots of things that, I, that you can predict I will do, and I will do them. So if, if, for example, you had the data of what my experience of myself was like, you had the data on what is in my consciousness, so the external stimulation and my needs to eat, breathe, drink, etc., as well as you knew what was in my subconscious, the, the thing that I don't know, you would be able to say, in five minutes, you will have this information presented externally. For example, an attractive person, a delicious piece of chocolate cake, mm -hmm. a comment made by Dan Brown that will trigger a reaction from me. You are likely to predict my behaviour. Oh, James is going to hear that comment and he's going to... Laugh like a girl. Yes. He's going to see that cake and he's going to be distracted from what he was doing and either eat it or think about eating it. And with more information, you would actually be able to pick one of those two things. Like saying, pink elephant, pink elephant, pink elephant. You can't do anything but picture the pink elephant. So I'm not just sat here going, ooh, I, and I'm going to use the curator now. Ooh, I'm the curator of my life. Mm hmm right now so this is what has happened a piece of chocolate cake has been put in front of me all the things I could do right now I could eat the chocolate cake I could not eat I'm not really that creatively in control of my life uh -huh. uh, there are lots of things that I will just do and I don't really have the control over it that I think I will so in the, like in the, in the Daniel Kahneman book the thinking fast the thinking slow that's almost the the, the, the main distinction isn't it 
there's those automatic quick ways of thinking that happen without you even being in control of them quickly thinking quickly and there's that slower ability that we have to stop pause think about the stimulus think about the input think about the choices think about the options but even with both of those there are processes going on that we have absolutely no control over, yeah. which would be on that kind of biological, um, neurochemical level. That even if we really desperately wanted to not smell the cake, okay, or or not have our brain go, Zoom, it's a cake, or, or or I could eat the cake, we, we can't. It was very, very difficult to control any of that stuff. And I think this book, Flow, firstly deals with the second system two thinking which is the the taking your time to actually process the information as opposed to being instinctive so that you can be more purposeful with what you pay attention to but it also to some extent tries to encourage patterns of behavior that don't rely on system one or that allow you to adapt system one so that it fits your life goals and things rather than being at the mercy of your external stimulation. So you can make system one decisions, mm -hmm. which is the impulsive thing, based on your own life goals as opposed to what's happening right in front of you. Give me some examples of that, because sound, that sounds a bit too lofty for even me. <laughs> you know, I, I had an idea of what you might be talking about, so I was thinking for myself, I was thinking, oh, well, if I remove, say, alcohol and Netflix from my life, or alcohol and excessive television watching from my life, I would have more space, perhaps I would have a, a different uh, physical sensation, I would have better ability to be able to use the slower, more conscious, more self-aware thinking. And the faster one. And the faster because one. Because the faster yes, one yes, will yes. be determined by the alcohol and the TV because yeah. you'll just be numbed by the alcohol and numbed by the TV and the, the faster one will be far more effective because you won't make the effort to think slowly. You'll just let the fast, impulsive thinking uh, make most of your decisions. So if you actively make the effort to stop drinking and watching TV you are automatically setting yourself up to make better impulsive decisions as well as taking the time to make slower decisions as long as you are purposeful in ordering consciousness, which is what we are talking about because that's what the purpose of the book is, yeah. teaching yeah, yeah, you yeah, to yeah. order your consciousness. And, and uh, chapter two uh, in the book Flow is looking at like what is consciousness and that's some of the ideas we're talking about. Um, so consciousness though is, I think that you might use, use the phrase the playground or something or the, or the staging ground for, it's the, it's the space with which we're able to make decisions about our life. It's the space that we are, you know, it is thinking and it's the different ways of thinking and consciousness is something that um, and, and the book suggests is that traditionally and historically in different cultures uh, control of consciousness has been considered a very important factor and nowadays perhaps less so and so what the book is suggesting is that you that we, we start to learn and look at all the different cultures and the different research and the different schools of thinking um, and I think he mentions neuroscience, neurology, um, psychology, um, phenomenology, all the different fields of study. 
looking at all of that and systems thinking and trying to work out okay what is the best way we can get to what are the what are the best lessons we've learned in order to be able to use our consciousness to achieve a kind of a state of happiness and a state of happiness according to the book is this state flow um, whereby you're doing things that you enjoy doing or you're not doing anything and enjoying doing it uh, and so consciousness is almost like this is the tool we have with which to achieve flow ding holocaust you know how i love to uh, bring up paedophilia the holocaust all these various controversial topics in this podcast um it's often mentioned in the book examples of people who managed to find um order in consciousness and therefore an element of happiness whilst being prisoners in Nazi concentration so whilst camps. Whilst being prisoners? Yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a book by Victor... Um, carry on, James, I'll come back to this. No, that's enough about the Holocaust. I only like to just drop in little tidbits about the Holocaust or paedophilia and all other similar subjects yes. like your sex life. I don't like to actually yes. elaborate on them and go into yes. full detail. Or indeed answer the point that I really made prior to that. Victor, now what is his name? It's a wonderful book. It's, um, it, I really wish it was, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful book. It's written by someone who was a Holocaust survivor and it talks exactly about this topic. Anything, I probably got it from the first time I read Flow. So the horrors that this guy went through, but what he found was that he was able to um, find joy within himself uh, and help other people do the same thing by giving himself purpose and ordering consciousness. I would Victor Frankel. Okay. That's it. Victor Frankel, and the book is called One Man's. It's bloody brilliant. You need to read it. Yeah, there's a, there's an example of someone who did exactly what you're saying. And the difference between a human who has consciousness is that, and anything else is that if we were anything else that doesn't have consciousness, a For robot. Example, or a fox. Or, or a stuffed fox with an amazing Technicolor dream coat around it. I might take a picture of that for the my personal Instagram feed, uh, dated about August 2019, so you can uh, find that and then scroll to the relevant point to see it. Uh, <laughs> without consciousness, we would only operate reflexive, reflexively and instinctively. With consciousness, we can daydream write poems, paint pictures, imagine the future, etc. Yeah, yeah. Can the fox do any of those things? No, but the fox can inspire those things in others, despite having no consciousness. And um, the book says that humans have evolved to have this ability to make themselves happy or miserable, regardless of what is actively happening outside, which is what which is the example of the person in the concentration camp. But you don't need to be in a concentration camp. You can be in a, in a job that all that's sort of like a fa factory production line, or you can be chopping carrots for dinner. And then it's about how you how you choose to order your consciousness whilst you're doing that that makes you happy, or stressed, or irritated, or annoyed. So in, you could. You could be, say, poor, like with not very much money, your basic needs met, and be a carrot chopper or a factory worker, but could be incredibly happy. Is this what, is this what we're looking at? Yeah. Due to your control of your consciousness. Yeah, episode two of Private Practice Podcast, season five, how you can cut carrots and be happy. 
Yeah. A, a simple guide to <laughs> 10 steps to achieving happiness whilst chopping carrots. A, a motivational self-help guide from your friends, Dan and James, at the Private Practice Podcast. Tell your friends. Yeah, chapter, chapter two of Private Practice Podcast, season five. Two middle-class twats <laughs> patronise the... Uh, <laughs> the, the working classes by telling them that they too, with their knives and their factory conveyor belts, could still be happy if they just learned to order their consciousness by reading flow. I just want to tweak slightly. Those of you, those of you, I look down upon from uh, from my middle class plateau down there in the working class valley. Just uh, by the way, just to clarify, I'm currently unemployed. But anyway, uh, down there. Um, I look down upon thou, but I say to thou from my lofty plateau, you too can be as happy as I am whilst chopping carrots. Or... Actually, it's quite a good example because you are unemployed and you are one of the happiest people I know. At the minute, you just wonder. I mean, last week, what did you do? You spent three or four hours entertaining yourself by sending me photos of books in a bookshop that I wouldn't want. <laughs> <laughs> Wandering the lanes of Brighton, looking to see if he could once again bump into Chantal from Big Brother, and would he, when he inadvertently turn a corner and see Ollie Alexander's face, um, or, 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 and you were happy, right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you don't, who, even, you what, don't even need which, a knife or a conveyor belt. Which better person to take advice from than someone who is currently um, happily unemployed? Happily unemployed and just spending time on the beach and yeah. In fact, that you did give a really interesting example of um, almost using a kind of uh, external stimulus to internally order. Because often there's there's that lovely phrase, isn't there? Um, it, like it's like two, out of sight, out of mind, and something like tidy house, tidy mind, isn't it? You know, some something like that. Out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, mean meaning that there's something external that you can do to change what you're thinking about. You know. The obnoxious thing that I just said about um, me on my lofty middle-class plateau talking down to thou, the working classes, is a good example of some unnecessary identity provocation that could disorder consciousness in someone listening to that who has issues with class. So, for example, they might identify themselves as working class and think it's unfair that I have middle-class privilege. There might be someone else who is middle class who thinks I'm just being stupid saying this. There might be someone who's upper class who doesn't even know what I'm talking about because, you know, what is there other than silver service and fox hunting? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Foxy? Um, I feel like we should point out to the listener that I have now acquired uh, an antique taxidermied fox uh, who... Uh, Look at me. An Don't antique. look at the fox when you speak because this is the microphone. Yes, thank you, James. Okay, carry thank on. You. I have now acquired an antique taxidermied fox as a present uh, for my 40th birthday. And uh, she, he is here with us and staring at James throughout this entire conversation. So when we refer to the fox, have a little look for James's photo, but it is a real thing. We're not just completely loopy. <laughs> my, my stupid comments about class. Yeah. Well, th this is what, this is a... This is actually some of my uh, old behaviour that I don't like. I just immediately launch into stupid comments about class sometimes mm -hmm. because... Um, what class are you, James? Well... I feel like you're classless. I, I don't mean like you have no class. I know that I have a southern English accent that 
means that the listener, if they're aware of English accents, already knows um, what they think of me. And I could, I, could even, I could say anything, and it's irrelevant, because the listener has heard my accent and has decided. There are plenty of aspects that I appreciate. For example, at the moment, I am able to uh, stay with family whilst I am... I mean, it's... A, it's I think this is a big distraction. Just just answer the question, but, James. You're talking about control of consciousness, and I think that it, you were trying to give an example. By... Uh, here's an example. I've got a chip oh. on my shoulder. I'm working class. I've got a chip on my shoulder about people who have more than me. I think it's unfair. James Hall talks rubbish on a podcast. I hear it, however that has come about, and I have an emotional reaction to the stupid things he's saying about class. I think I know more than him about class. I think he's talking rubbish. Therefore, my current state of calm, neutrality, order in consciousness mm -hmm. is disrupted by the stupid thing James says about class. He's, make, he's, not, he's not even making a funny joke. He's trying to make a... He seems like he's trying to say something funny that he hasn't thought about and it isn't funny, and it, he doesn't, hasn't even thought it through, which is why he's umming and ahhing and stuttering and going off on an irritating tangent that but shouldn't be in his podcast. Pur purposefully antagonistic. Is that part of what you're saying here? And in that situation where class matters to me and I have a chip on my shoulder about someone like James Hall, and when I hear James Hall, I am antagonised by that... Um, that is me letting James Hall control my consciousness and turning it into disorder. <coughs> if, however, I dealt with my issues of class and uh, or I um, was aware of was aware of all these different things and how they affect me and the fact that what my goals are and what happens when I let some idiot like James Hall say stupid things about class and let that irritate me that interferes with my getting the goals, um, I know that what I need to... The, the thing I actually need to work on is to not let that interfere with and cause chaos in my consciousness. Mm. Wow, that was... That, A great example. I mean, wow. <laughs> like, uh, I'm pretty certain you started that at about the 16-minute mark. We're now on to 32 minutes. I can't quite remember where it came from, but... Don't let James Hall antagonise you. Um, something that you said that was somewhat antagonising to me was a working class person with a chip on their shoulder. It wasn't. Good. It was. It, and I thought, what, what, what would this working class person, obviously, either with their kitchen knife chopping the carrots for the middle class and, and upper class people who come into the restaurant that night or the, the working class man on his conveyor belt packing uh, in a shoal factory somewhere in Derbyshire, smaller things into smaller things, into boxes, into bigger boxes. Um, what, would they, what would they think when you said the working class person with a chip on their shoulder? You know, is it a chip on their shoulder or is it that, James, you're just an arsehole, you know? I, you see my point? Like, and I think that actually what, what, what we're talking about is the idea that this kind of information from others and these signals from the world they come into you and you've got an opportunity there is a there's there's this staging ground there's like a playground to be able to turn it into what you like so um an example that i think i can't remember whether you've spoken about it already but uh, i saw the poet simon armitage at, at the weekend uh, um in the poetry tent at a very middle class festival and he is very working class. I think he's from Huddersfield uh, and he's the Poet Laureate. 
and he he takes all the information from his emotion and his senses and he turns it into poetry and his poems are incredibly moving and one of the things that he did that was really interesting was he he like lit, some of his poems are like almost just lists they're just like you know he'll he'll repeat words but he'll the list will sort of build up and it will give you this momentum of an idea of a thought process but obviously what he does is he listens to people he looks at things he feels things and then rather than perhaps I mean, you know, maybe he feels angry or maybe he feels sadness or lust or fear or whatever, but he turns them, he takes that and he creates something from it rather than just being, if you'll forgive me, I don't know anything as a background, the working class man with a chip on his shoulder about others who, who, ha who get to eat the carrots that the man in the, you know, or are going to use those shoal foot pads on their um, bunions or because of the gout they've got from all their rich living. He turns it into this beautiful, beautiful poetry. And that is a state of flow. It's taken all of that information in, all of the experiences, all of the sens sensation that have caused emotions that could get stuck in your head with and turn into the chip on the, the shoulder. Instead, you, you, he, he turns it into a state of flow, which put, he can puts back, out, puts back out into the world, which helps the middle class people sitting in the tent going, oh, what a <laughs> Understand what it was like to be a young man in the 1960s growing up with a sort of a punk rock background and losing his first girlfriend, you know? And this is what we're talking about, right? And it's also why I don't like identity politics because if I identify as middle class, firstly, some of the things in my life don't make sense. I don't have a large family home that you would associate with the middle class. There's a one-bedroom flat which doesn't have enough space for my stuff so I have to pay for storage and therefore I'm heading towards debt by doing that, which is a, not a middle-class thing. A middle-class thing is you put it in mummy and daddy's garage. Um, or mummy and daddy... Rent a place for you. Yes, exactly. Um, or you just already are a lawyer and therefore you have the money to pay for the, the, the storage. Or you at least don't just spend your days wandering around bookshops sending pointless photos to someone who's asking you specific questions to help find a specific book. But if you're doing that and you're middle class, the expectation is that you have some kind of trust fund or you are... You can afford to do it. You yeah. can afford to take a year out and do a master's or something on a student loan, whatever it is, that, that you can afford to do it. To and everything's going to be OK. Whereas realistically, I can't afford to do that. And so... James, is, James just wants to make really clear that he's not your typical middle-class <laughs> southern Englishman. But, uh, but any, any identification... If you identify as working class, if you identify as uh, anything, certainly if you identify as being um, uh, some kind of victim, then you are creating the environment for disorder in consciousness. I am a victim, therefore everything in the external world is proof that I can't achieve happiness and satisfaction and I'm constantly subjecting myself to stimulation of chaos. Right, you're spot on with something that I often struggle to verbalise and talk about. And it's this, you know, you've got the Donald Trump uh, group calling people that get emotionally 
triggered by things, snowflakes. And then you've got the kind of the more left-wing or liberal people going, oh, no, but people are experiencing emotions and should be allowed to experience emotions. And you've got the like gender identity and how, how dare you not use the right pronouns. And there's a really interesting middle ground in this because what you and I are, in effect, talking about is if I... And I do this to some of my partners. I'll say, you're, you know, you're a good girl. And they don't like being called girl because they're not a girl, but they could just completely ignore that. So, so why is it that someone who perhaps has a gender identity internal issue, why shouldn't I be able to call him or her or they or them? Or the, why shouldn't I be able to do that? Because surely the mastery of oneself is more important than the external stimulus. Of course, of course, it could be an extreme where you're talking about hate and violence and abuse. But in the day-to-day, -day, why should we have to be careful about what we might say affecting other people? I don't think we really should. And that's why I use... So it may have seemed irritating that I, brought, that I started going on about my lofty middle-class plateau talking down to the working-class person with a chip on the shoulder. But the idea is that if you identify as working class and you're irritated by someone who has more than you, you are not in a position where you can uh, control consciousness because every outside stimulation from someone saying something obnoxious, which I deliberately did just now, is going to disrupt your current state of consciousness. And I could feel the same because... Um, I could look at all the people who have jobs at the moment and I could see the world from a viewpoint of all those people have money coming in that I don't have coming in. The, 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 so in other words, there'll be people who will look at me and think that I have so much privilege that it's much easier for me to get a job than for them and there's me looking at other people who uh, get jobs f with far more ease than I do because I find it very uh, difficult and hateful sometimes applying for jobs or mm -hmm. doing things like that. And I look at them with jealousy and I think oh well it's all right for you but uh, my CV is chaotic and no one ever employs me because I've spent my life changing my mind and being indecisive and then people look at that and think well you don't know what you want and you, I don't think it's this job and I'm not going to employ it. all these sorts of things I can view my life through the lens of uh, well it's all right for you you've got an income I haven't at the moment or I can not let that information about another person. So, have you got any examples at the minute? Because you're you're talking as if you aren't actually going through that experience at the moment. When actually you are, you don't have a job at the moment. You are wandering the streets. You've got some support from family, but not the traditional, you know, the the kind of nonsense we were just talking about. Um, the ideal middle class family with everyone there to help and support you and money behind you. You don't, and you are. Is starting to slowly work towards needing to use that overdraft. Oh dear, James. Um, so what is that like? How are you finding it? Or are you you know, are you worrying? Are thoughts rising up in you? Are, is there anxiety? Are you stressed? Are you or are you in a? I mean, one of the things that we're talking about with flow, there's there, there's euphemisms for it. It might be the wrong word, but there's uh, like you might words like uh, being zen. You know, people <laughs> kind of know what zen is. Yeah. Generally, on the whole. Zen is, I think, a, a kind of a, a, a Japanese state of calm, enlightenment, but uh, being able to purposefully, logically think through situations and problems without them adversely affecting you. And so this state of flow that we're talking about, that we're, we're looking into for this, this um, 
this series is, is like Zen, it's like mindfulness, it's like a kind of a meditation, but it's also a, a purposeful active state. So at the minute, are you in a state of flow, James? Or are things affecting you adversely, negatively? Are you worrying? Are you self-criticising? What's going on for you right now? Well, I can't help all those things happening naturally, and I feel like recently I've been able to deal with them better than any time before. And I've, as I spoke last week about being on the beach and looking at all the people around me having a good time, and instead of that making me think, uh, why aren't I... In that situation, why have I gone wrong? Why am I so stupid? Why do I always get myself in, self into situations that are, that are not the things that I aspire to? Because what I aspire to is to be in that group with the people having fun on the beach as opposed to here watching life like I'm David Attenborough and an outsider and I'm not participating and I'm not valid and I'm not a part of this world and I never see my friends and they're not good enough because they don't make things happen and I try and make things happen and it doesn't work, therefore I'm not good enough and what's the point in any of this, therefore suicide? Instead of getting to that, <laughs> instead of getting to that, I, I find myself on the beach thinking... I know what I am able to control at the moment and what I'm not able to control. I know what my situation is. I know that this is mostly my choice. I know that there are external things that disadvantage me, but I know I can do things about those or I can do my best in those situations. And I know that there are also things that are to my advantage that I can use if I concentrate on them and think about them. But right now, I'm on the beach and I enjoy looking to the horizon. I enjoy having all these people around me and... I, I actually enjoy little narratives when someone is on their own but then someone comes to join them and I, I hear their voice for the first time and the accent isn't what I expected or their interaction with someone isn't what I expected and I think, where, what's going to happen next and how are they going to spend... And sometimes I see someone... Like, sometimes probably I... Um, so sometimes I actually enjoy my instinctive judgment. So sometimes I'll be walking along the beach and I'll see someone who's got some trashy magazine and they're flicking through it and they've got headphones in with their phone and they're flicking through the phone and they're eating something. And I think you're not concentrating on the taste. You're not uh, subjecting yourself to anything that will constitute personal stimulation, enjoyment and growth. It's literally just pap or tat in the magazine pap tat pap tat in the magazine uh, like so you did i just did i mention taste you're not focusing on the flavor of the no, food enjoying it's the just, texture in your mouth it's just the process of shoveling it in your mouth to occupy yourself to distract yourself to it's like tapping your fingers it's like you're not content with life and you're just make, go, going through all these distractions to get through life and i think gosh James, what a judgment that was. <laughs> Do you? You think, didn't I, didn't I get that just right? And you enjoy that you were able to think that thought in, yes. in your head and you, you enjoy the weight of the thought. And, and I don't... You enjoy the smell of the thought in your... Can you smell burning, James? I'm just sitting here and for the last five minutes I've been smelling... It's probably someone having a barbecue. It does smell like a barbecue. It's, it's a barbecue smell. It's it? Sunday in summer in England. It's likely to be a barbecue. a barbecue. The door is open as well. Yeah, I just, just hope we're not on fire. Anyway, something that we were talking about, I mean, there's two things that you didn't pick up on, whether I actually managed to articulate them or whether you'd jumped in with something that you already had planned. I'm not sure or whether... Anyway, one of them was using external stimulus to order your mind. So one of the things that you'd spoken to me about, and it's back to the beach again, James, and it's back to you... So one of your favourite... Back to me. Have we actually gone away from me at all during this episode? Well, it's just that I was talking, but I'm going to be talking about you. OK. Um, 
So James, you were telling me about being on the beach and a lovely pebbly beach. Um, and I'd recently been on a pebbly beach myself and I actually prefer the pebbly beaches. And I think we all do this, so we'll sit somewhere, especially if we're on our own, and we'll start looking at the pebbles around us. And for some reason or other, our brain will choose a colour we like and we might think, oh, I'm going to put... Oh, that one's kind of a pinky colour, so I'm going to put all the pinky pebbles over there. But you were telling me about how, uh, as you've grown up, when you've been on the beach, you've started to order the pebbles in a in a kind of a almost impossible attempt to potentially order the entire beach. Yeah, so the, the shape of the pebble slots in to space, negative spaces between other pebbles that fit snugly, as opposed to just lots of gaps or bits sticking out and so on. Yeah, so, so that is, in a way, a very good example of how you... I don't know what would have been going on in your mind at the time. Perhaps it's a way of avoiding thinking, perhaps it's a way of ordering thinking, perhaps it's a way of just completely focusing on an activity that gives you a sense of calm, but also you're, you're using the external environment. And it reminded me when you were saying about this, this idea of uh, most recently when you'd done it, you realised that you were never going to we were never going to be able to like clear and sort the whole beach. <laughs> so you just enjoyed it for being in the moment, putting some pebbles in your hands, the texture, the colours, the... Am I right? Absolutely. Like the child self-soothing in the cot, looking at the mobile going around above its head, going, oh, it's a sheep, oh, it's a cow, oh, it's blue, oh, it's yellow. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And that idea of self-soothing, actually, we haven't talked about it a lot. It might have come up in the episode on... Uh, personality disorders we had in season four but self-soothing is perhaps one of the techniques in which you can start to order the mind a little bit you know take the edge off emotions that you're feeling that are strong because something that I'm also very aware of is other seasons we're speaking about uh, distress a lot mental unwellness and this season we're jumping in with this book flow right okay everything's sorted <laughs> everything's sorted guys <laughs> We've we've talked to you for three. We've we've done a couple of kind of sort of dramatic episodes, uh, seasons where James is in therapy. We've done a we've done a little look back through James's uh, first four months travelling, and then we've done a season for you on most important aspects of psychological health. Uh, and now we're on to flow. <laughs> Now we're on to flow, guys, and because we're on flow now, what you'll do is you'll read along with us, and because obviously everything that we we do have to accept that flow is a state by which you probably need to be in a relatively um, good place to begin with to start using these techniques, although you, you have to have the motivation, you have to have the energy, you have to have the drive to want to be able to, and to, and to know that the possibility of being able to control the uncomfortable aspects of your mind and your thoughts is there. But when you have a mental illness, although not to go too much off on a tangent, I'd sort of disagree with the idea of them being anything other than severely distressed states that are controllable uh, on the whole. Obviously, sometimes medication is needed. But we're talking now about something that actually you do need to be in a relatively healthy mental state to start implementing, right? Because otherwise you're... Disruptive core beliefs, for example, your... Well, actually, a lot of this comes up in my notes that I have prepared for this episode, mm -hmm. and we're on maybe sort of like page two of something like ten, so it's time that I make this noise and 
turn to the next page. What have, I, what have I written down? Time for me to read something from a piece of paper. And James, can we play the, if I hold my hand up or wave at you game, it's because I have something to say about that thing on the bit of paper. Yes. Excellent game. And go. Okay, so this is slightly, we accidentally kind of covered some of this. So this well, is... we accidentally covered some of the topic that we're talking about today. Absolutely. Wow. Consciousness may include, for example, fudge, Tony Blair, it's raining, I'm having pasta tonight. All of those things are potentially in my consciousness. I'm aware of Tony Blair. I was alive in 1997. Um, I used fudge as a joke. I might be having pasta tonight. It might be raining. All of those things might be in my consciousness, but it's not just like having your mind set to shuffle and everything that you know and can see and hear and smell and taste are just like a playlist on shuffle, one after the other. These things just turn up in your mind completely randomly. So we have intentions which bring to mind certain things at certain times. And this is basically what we've talked about. The book refers to intention specifically. Intention doesn't say why a person wants to do a certain thing, simply states that the person does. Whereas we are looking at why a person wants to do a certain thing as well, because that is uh, called beliefs and the subconscious. Why do I want to eat? Have sex, prove my father wrong, win at life against school bullies, be remembered beyond death, find love, impregnate my mother. <laughs> uh. <laughs> at any one time, you might want to do any of those things. And those intentions are organised in hierarchies or goals. The book doesn't look at the reason why Freud talks about the Oedipus complex. The book doesn't look at the reason why you might make decisions in life because really what you're driven to do is overcome that time at school when you were bullied. I mean, obviously this doesn't apply to me because I have the, whatever you call it, privilege of I wasn't bullied at school. Mm -hmm. that, is what, that is my divine privilege of some substantial value that I have just been gifted with as luck in life. I was not bullied at school. As was it happenstance, is that...? It's just, it just happened that you weren't bullied in school. Yeah, I could have been born someone else and could have been bullied throughout school. And right now, I might be unable to think fast or slow or in flow or any of that without having my mm. consciousness clouded with this drive to prove myself in adult life, prove those bullies wrong. Yeah, I guess, I guess who we're talking to then, although we're talking to the listener, we're talking to everyone listening in in no matter what mental state and we're looking at we are have suggested in previous seasons that there are ways to get through the kind of problems that bullying or trauma or uh, mental unwellness or family distress or uh, breakups or sadness or stress might cause you the kind of internal struggles of consciousness um, because all of those things all of those mental uh, processes that uh, uh, could be labelled as illness or unwellness, they are consciousness. They are all illnesses of consciousness. They are all, to lesser or varying degrees, getting in the way of you being in a state of flow. So we, we are accepting that flow is something that needs prior work before you can get to this level of mastery of your own consciousness. And 
to refer back to seasons one, two, three, four of the podcast and have a little listen to the way that James and I have explored that and the way that James has changed over the course of the podcast and, and, uh, and, and get the help you need if you aren't able to get yourself even into a state of relative calm and peace. Right. And even if you are in a state of relative calm and peace and everything's going your way and you have all the opportunities and you're applying for a job that, let's say, looking into the future, you are going to get, you can still be more uh, flowing, <laughs> purposeful, if you're aware, for example, that you're, um, you might not eat or sleep in order to submit that job application. So that is your ordering of consciousness to your disadvantage because you need to eat and sleep. But your intent is to get that job and that intent might override your other needs in life to eat and sleep, for example. Yeah, and, and also the intention to get the job, because I think in the, first, in the introduction, Michali Chikzen Michali, uh, which I really hope I'm pronouncing it properly, I really should check that, shouldn't I? Before I keep saying it. I'm just wondering if he's from the Czech Republic and therefore... No, he's not, he's, I think, Hungarian. Okay. So not check that as in C-Z-E-C-H? No. Okay. Not that. Um, what was I saying, James? Thank you for that. I don't know, but it doesn't matter because I've got something that I've written down on a piece of paper. The existence of heroes, artists... Just pause as I think about myself. Criminals, etc. Show how consciousness can be ordered in terms of different goals and intentions... But the same can be said for different personalities of otherwise unremarkable people like you. I actually wrote like me, but then I changed it at the last minute. Mm. <laughs> because you constantly tell me isn't everything like that, therefore I think of myself as reassuringly unremarkable these days. Yes, no, but, but it was only in, it's only really in the idea that the uh, concerns and distresses that you have and the and the self-beliefs about you being a, like a total oddball are unremarkable and accessible to all of us at different times in our life. I'm not saying that there's nothing unique about you. I mean, you're very tall. <laughs> the next bit of the, uh, the chapter starts to talk about the limits of consciousness. And I'm not going to go into... There's some, there's some science in this bit of the chapter where they talk about bits per second that the human brain is thought to be able to process and disagreements and it was written in the late 80s or early 90s anyway so it was the cutting edge of neuroscience at that time which may have changed this but there basically it acknowledges that you I, I did actually say at the beginning of this episode that you can process everything you can't process everything there's an amount of information that your brain can process at a time and you might not be using it to its full extent but it has an extent. There are limitations to the capacity for thinking. I think that's enough of a summary of that bit of the chapter. I can turn that page over. Excellent. That's a good page, James. Uh, attention as psychic energy. So the book refers to ah. psychic energy, which sounds like mystical sound. Mystic Meg is looking into a crystal ball, um, some kind of like hippie with dreadlocks, but probably white skin and lives in Dalston with lots of things collected from a gap year and uh -huh. has got incense burning and all that. And um, But that is not what it means. Psychic energy is something completely different and it's a term we use in psychiatry and mental health regularly to mean the, uh, the amount and the capacity we have 
to be able to put uh, energy into our thinking and our thoughts and also perhaps how tiring or stressful that thinking or that processing is. Does that help? Yes. Carry on with your page though, sorry. I'm actually just going to read it and then I'll just... Do, do that, yeah, yeah, okay. Just watching James read a page. Did you, that, was, that was quite good, I actually listened to you rather than reading ahead whilst you were talking. did a really good job, yeah. Okay, so uh, just as a summary of that little bit, information enters consciousness either because we intend to focus intention on it or as a result of attentional habits based on biological or social instructions, which is most of what we've been talking about so far. Yes, and previous, when I, when I was asking whether I was pronouncing the author's name correctly, you'd made an interesting comment about intention, the intent to get the job. And in the, uh, it was your example, you don't sleep and you don't eat because you intend to get this job. But the book is also asking you, and flow, the state of flow is also asking you, the concept is asking you to think about what are the things you're in, intending for yourself and why. Um, because although we may have a drive to be richer, have a bigger house, be more successful, to have uh, more money, to have more stuff, to have better shoes, a faster car. An aspirational Instagram profile with pictures of yourself perfectly tanned with an acceptable figure in stylish clothes in an aspirational location with people around you who reinforce your popularity. Yes, yes. Because we think it will make us happy. So the intentions and the drives that everyone have, other than those basic human needs that we talked about before that need to be met, obviously, you know, uh, safety, hunger, warmth, um, thirst, you know, uh, and also attention. Um, once those have been met, those drives we have are actually, on the whole, however they're translated in your brain, you know, are about finding happiness. And we might have this intention, this drive to, to get a better job, a, a better this, a better, to make ourselves happy. But actually, what we're intending for ourselves is happiness, not the job itself. But if we, if we break down the idea, why am I going for this job? Why am I going for this promotion? Why am I moving house? Why do I go onto Amazon to buy this thing? Because we, we believe it's going to bring some happiness into our life. And this book is challenging that idea. And, it's, it's and yet at the same time calling itself the classic work on how to achieve happiness for fourteen ninety nine. Yes, but no. It's suggesting that... That's the, that's the publishers are doing that. That's not the... That's, the, that's judging the book by its cover. It literally is. <laughs> um, the content of the book is trying to suggest that we stop, we pause, we take a look at the content of our consciousness and try and think about things that genuinely make us happy. So we've had a whole episode of the allotment, and being at the allotment makes me happy, but yet I probably only spend about 10% of my time down there. I spend about 60% of my time either at or thinking about work, when the thing that makes me the happiest, I almost spend the smallest amount of time doing. We talked about Netflix. The amount I probably spend 25% of my evenings with it on, when actually I... I know that I prefer reading. So my grasp and control of consciousness is pretty shit. I'm allowing, and drinking as well, I'm well aware that, it, I mean, the way I'm feeling today, James. But hold on, I want to, do the, my, uh, the autist, autist brain has just gone into meltdown. Uh, I, there are two channels here. One is 
the distraction from watching TV and all that sort of stuff. And the other is having a goal, for example, let's just take the superficial one of going on a holiday and getting the aspirational Instagram profile with all the things that I just listed and all the people around you reinforcing your popularity and making your life look great so you feel like you're a success and you think that when your life is a success, you'll be happy. You can do that, as in you can go on holiday with friends and do all the things and enjoy it. But if you're doing it just so that you have the pictures to prove that your life is a success in the hope that that will make you happy, that's not what will make you happy. But you can still do exactly the same thing and be happy. You can also apply for the job and devote most of your time to it, <coughs> maybe miss a little bit of sleep, maybe not how you would if you weren't applying for the job, and still be happy in the process of doing that, ordering your life so that you're going for that job, and when you get the job, focusing on the or, things in the job that you enjoy and so on. Or don't get the job. See, I, think, or, yeah. I think that's the point, is that if you don't get the job... Um, I, in fact, my first experience with this, this part of the idea was when I was doing the second year of my family therapy course, and in order to technically pass the course, I would have to have gone through such, such a difficult political situation in my workplace to get the hours I needed to finish the portfolio so I passed all the academic work it was year two of a course and it was the first time in my life and that I had to say I had to work out how I could use the control of my consciousness that I had to say that I was okay with failing I did not finish the course I do not have the certificate I've done all of the academic work it is all passed but in order to technically have finished the course and to tick have passed I needed to have done 60 hours of practice and the stress that I was going through the idea of what I would be if I was a if I was a failure if I failed because I failed things accidentally in the past but the idea of allowing myself to say no I am not going to get into a political battle with my manager in order for them to change my working practices so that there was enough time for me to do my clinical hours to pass this course. I had to accept that I could also be happy failing. And that was a really, really difficult and interesting turning point in my life. Because after that, I was able to start to know what, what was worth investing in, what was worth investing that psychic energy in. Because was I going to be any happier at the end of the day if I was able to accept that I'd not passed, was I going to be any happier with the certificate that said I had completed year two? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I wasn't going to be any happier. I was going to think I was happier up until I had the certificate. My mum might say, oh, well done, you completed year two. And I go, ooh, I'm happier. <laughs> I'm, my boss might even go, oh, well done, you finished that. And do you know what? Six months later or, or a year later when I applied for my master's degree, I also had the challenge of that boss saying, oh, Dan but you don't always finish things. And do you know what? Excuse me, because I am out about it. I kind of wanted to turn around and say, seriously, fuck off. The reason why I didn't finish that was because I had to accept failure because of your fucking inability to manage a team that enables all of their staff to achieve the goals that you set them. But I didn't. I just said, yes, in that instance, I didn't manage to complete that piece of work. And more on that in future chapters, but the next bit of the chapter we're looking at today is entitled The Self. So back to me. 
My own self exists solely in my own consciousness. People who know me will have a vision of it, likely to be an unrecognisable likeness of the original, which is me as I see myself. And then there's a big chunk of the chapter which talks about how a large amount of consciousness is your own personal identity, how you see yourself, and therefore every stimulation from outside and every thought and feeling you have is entirely a moon going around the planet that is the only child centre of the universe, James Hall. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is self, the true self, is actually just like a fragments of an internal consciousness. And actually what a person is, is really made up of hundreds of, or even thousands if you know thousands of people, thousands of different fragments and image and ideas about you. But uh, in your, no, you're no. saying the opposite of that. I'm, yeah, I'm saying that... Um, Fuck what everyone else thinks, and I'm getting a bit sweary now because I got annoyed about that situation. <laughs> no, not a disregard of what anyone else thinks, but it's just an awareness of the context of this when you're thinking about consciousness. It's just, uh, in order to understand some of this, an awareness of your own idea of yourself and the fact that other people have a completely different idea of yourself and that your own idea of yourself is... a huge influence in the way you order the the world the information that you have coming in and your subconscious which is the large part of yourself is the uh the the controller of many of your decisions what is it what's, what's happened now i think as we're talking about control of the consciousness uh, if we bring it to like real world i'm now battling with a few ideas because of something that i just said on this recording well, that's uh, potentially one of these uh, emotions that represent disorder in consciousness. I want you to press your buzzer when you hear what any that are relevant to you right now. I've only got this bell. Will this work? Yes. OK. Pain. Fear. Anger. Anxiety. Jealousy. I didn't put any more on the list. I thought that was enough. Oh, right. And that makes me look pretty shit, doesn't it? If you put more on it, I might have, might have seemed less... Less of a mess. Thanks, James. But these all divert psychic energy away from intention, so your intention right now might be to produce a thoroughly compelling and yet entertaining, whimsical, <laughs> offbeat, slightly different to all those other podcasts about... Whatever the, this is about. About whatever this is about. Yeah. Um, and you're now distracted by the thoughts and feelings you had in the moment and now looking back <coughs> in relation to the boss who had the expectation and the way that it interfered with your life and the thing that you had to do and all that. Yeah, but even before that, you know, I uh, was at a family party last night. I drank way too much. I woke up feeling sick. You had to cajole me into doing a podcast that actually my intention was to do all along. I invited you here, obviously, to come to the family party, barbecue, but also to do the podcast. My, my intentions... My behaviours got in way of my intentions and what actually does truly make me happy. And so the feelings I have, obviously feeling a bit sick and hungover, the anxiety feeling you have after drinking the day before, the tiredness, all of those things got in the way of actually what I was intending to do because of a lack of controlling of my consciousness. When last night something popped up in my head, oh, you probably don't need to open the third bottle of Prosecco or probably don't mix your drinks. I just ignored those very useful snippets of information and advice I gave myself because actually my primary goal was lost somewhere in myriad of nonsense. I witnessed a myriad of nonsense around the campfire last night. In fact, in the um, summer special that we did back 
in the summer. In the summer. But it's actually the same summer right now. But, no. but back in the summer, um, we, we had our campfire of defunct beliefs and last night there was an actual campfire. That was all about me, but last night there was an actual campfire as opposed to the sound effects that yes. I used for the Brilliant. summer special. Uh, there was an actual campfire and I witnessed you mm-hmm. and some of your behaviour as a runaway train steamrolling through the social event and the people around you last night and thought, what are the core beliefs that have led Dan to be in this inebriated state of mind? Mm-hmm. This antisocial, disruptive presence around the campfire right now. Did you? Yes. Wow. And what were your conclusions? Antisocial. Antisocial. Yes, so I'm now, it's not specifically around the campfire, but I'm talking about when there was a game going on and everyone had to be quiet and listen to sort of like an 11-year-old girl who was trying to read out a thing to play the game. And you came barging in with a portable USB speaker on your wrist, blaring out music and slurring your words and saying, uh, everyone, yeah. me, everyone listen to me. I'm too drunk to actually be funny or charismatic or witty or entertaining or anything, but I'm still going to draw the same attention to myself that I don't deserve anyway. What are you doing? Oh, going good. That's way too articulate. You were not that articulate at all. Really? Yeah. That is not a representative. But was, was shame on that list. Shame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also on this page, I've written down a quote, so it must be important. So I'm going to read it out now. The basic pattern is always the same. Some information that conflicts with an individual's goals appears in consciousness depending on how central that goal is to the self and on how severe the threat is, some attention will be diverted to eliminate the danger. Hmm? Hmm. That's something that you actually highlighted when you read this first time round some years ago. So in other words, I, assuming I was bullied at school, I go into a social situation, I go into the pub, and I'm about to have a nice time with some friends, but... As I walk in, at the door, someone bumps past me, unintentionally. But I perceive that as their big, broad-shouldered, proving themselves better than me and proving themselves more worthy of the space than me and pushing me out the way. And I immediately think that that person is deliberately picking on me and asserting their dominance and proving that I am the insignificant person in the situation. And it just reminds me of the time that people did that to me at school. And now I'm remembering that what I really want in life is to prove them wrong. And I go into that social situation combative and I look at all the ways in which all the other people around the table have privilege that I don't have and I'm bitter and jealous and I just use that to reassure myself that the world is an awful place and other people are awful and when everyone sees my point of view that's the only thing that will actually solve everything and therefore psychic entropy is ruining my flow yes yeah i think that happens with a lot of us a lot of the time and so i mean to start to summarize this chapter i guess or this this episode would would we say that Flow is about intentional control of the consciousness. Uh, consciousness is the area, the playground, the 
the staging ground for us being able to make changes and create things, manage problems, and also decide how we feel, how we, how we deal with the feelings and the sensory inputs of the world. And it's not as easily done as is, it is easily described. Blow is the state whereby we're making intentional decisions to have intentional outcomes and being able to enjoy what it is that we're doing as well as choose what it is that we're doing. Um, and, and, and consciousness, chapter two, is really our ongoing, almost continuous waking state what we're aware of and what information is coming in and how we're choosing to process that. You just use the word continuous, which is vital because some of the things I've just been talking about sound like they are simple, isolated moments that you can deal with, but it's the continuation of life, the repetition. If you're constantly having a working-class chip on your shoulder, I said, with my face expresses flippancy, but you can't see that, if you constantly have a chip on your shoulder, if you're constantly trying to prove those bullies wrong, if you're constantly getting drunk, uh, then it all builds up to a status quo of psychic entropy. It's a band name there, or maybe an album title. Or just a track title, maybe. Status quo of psychic entropy. Okay, Whereas so, if you start um, to order things, you create a pattern of order and therefore a good control. I don't mean control like being a control freak. I mean personal positive development. control. Proactive, constructive control. Yeah. Good. Just got two final things. Have you? Okay, yeah. Let's go with those two final things. Then. I mean, I say I've just got two. There were, just, there were two final things in this chapter. Two final subheadings. One is complexity and the growth of the self and I'm not giving too much attention to this because it's kind of relevant in all the subsequent chapters so I'm not going to go on about it now but basically I've from as you read on in the book and as you listen to more of these unmissable compelling episodes of the private practice podcast you will find that a lot of it comes down to personal development creating complexity in order to enjoy your life more. The more complex it becomes, the more enjoyable it becomes. And the quote from the book that I've written down here is, following the flow experience, the organisation of the self is more complex. So I think we've mostly talked today about how not to have flow. Assuming that you... <laughs> or, or things that get in the way of flow. Yeah. You know? It's not how not to have flow. Do make sure that you're continuously thinking about that one situation that happened to you when you were in school. Do make sure when you're on the beach that you don't pay attention to actually the enjoyment of it, but actually just bugger around in your own brain wishing you were doing something else. Uh, if assuming you're on the beach and you're organising the pebbles a little bit, but not to the point where you feel like you need to con to organise and finish the whole beach, um, you're uh, listening to the other people, but not getting so obsessed with them that you're starting to feel jealous of their situation and all that. And you're uh, in in the moment being mindful of the waves lapping on the shore and the birds who are landing on the burnt remains of the West Pier, etc. When you're in that situation, yourself becomes more complex. You are taking in all this new information, you're ordering it, and you are learning about yourself and developing yourself to be able to enjoy a situation like that and move on to the next. And the constant 
cumulative effect of this complex i mean that's there's very little complexity in that situation but in future chapters there are examples of a lot of complexity to do with things like learning a musical instrument climbing a mountain um writing poetry uh scientific discovery philosophy things like that where there is a lot of complexity that is introduced into your life you realize new things about yourself and about the world around you and the more that you build up that complexity by concentrating your mind and being purposeful about what you're focusing your attention on that complexity becomes the enjoyment as opposed to flicking the magazine stuffing your face with the snacks having pop music in your ears vaguely looking around you all the while being irritated by those school bullies and feeling like the world is out to get you because you are a victimized member of the working class and you'll never get ahead in life with Jacob Rees-Mogg in parliament and Brexit and the world is just awful and heading to hell and what's the point anyway and everything is going to be rubbish and now I'm just anxious where what I'm now feeling pain, fear, anger, anxiety, jealousy. Yeah. Something like that. And uh, if I remember right, you have one more thing that you must say. I do have one more thing, but I got slightly carried away there and I've uh, chucked all my pieces of paper. Differentiation and integration, that's the one other thing. We can also save this for later on in the series, but differentiation. For example, James Hall, the only child, spending lots of time on his own and becoming that weirdo, I have created myself and my personality as something differentiated from the herd. Instead of just following the flock and being a sheep and copying everyone else, I have created something that is unique and inspirational and divine. But I think from the episodes that we've had before and focusing on this, I went right the way up that hole. I fully penetrated that hole until I was in too deep yeah. and was not able to interact with other people and ignored integration, which is to be able to socialise, to be able to enjoy time with other people, to learn from other people, to help them, to give yourself, to be selfless and to enjoy that and to just interact with other people. That is something that I was unable to do for a lot of my life and that I've been trying to improve recently because the book talks about the, the balance of differentiation and integration being vital. For, if you just follow like a sheep, if you just desperately try to have the aspirational Instagram profile so that people will like you, you're not going to be happy. But at the same time, if you're just constantly showing off, I am James Hall, I'm the divine, I'm the individual, look at me, pay attention to me and how wonderful and different and special I am. Special is the key word. I'm special. I've worked hard to make myself special. Give me the, the round of applause that I need then I'm not actually interacting with people. I'm not enjoying the company of other people. I'm not giving myself. I'm just being purely selfish. I like it, and I do think, I do think there are topics we will have to talk about in more depth as we go through the chapters. Um, Dan is most of the way towards his afternoon nap. I am. I am. Um, <laughs> Fortunately, I've, I've run out of pieces of paper. I've said all the things that I wanted to say. I'm really glad. Um, 
Next week on uh, Private Practice Podcast, we'll be looking at episode uh, three, chapter three, uh, which will be enjoyment and the quality of life. Although, I think I've caught, because I made up some uh, preliminary chapter headings, because the the actual chapter headings are quite boring, so I'm coming up with some alternative Some better ones. You're, You're making the book better, are you, James? Yes. Your rewriting flow. You're establishing your uniqueness. Yeah, so this episode is likely to be called... Obviously, this is with no consultation of Dan whatsoever. That's fine. I'm, I'm... This episode is likely to be called Guilty Pleasure because it talks about the difference between pleasure and happiness. And obviously, guilty pleasure is a saying and the book talks about how pleasure does not lead to happiness. Which is something that I really need to take. Uh, a good hard look at and and really consider <sighs> anyway i think i've learned a lot today so thank you so much for being so vibrant and and present james um thank you to the listener and we will see you next week on private practice podcast and to anyone i've irritated today with my comments about social class i say down to you work on that to improve yourself Goodbye. <laughs>